Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So, very, very excited for this episode. This was one of the one of my most favorite chats in the, in the last little while, um, alongside a few other ones because it's an open chat about kind of like the nutrition side of things. It's an open chat about how the industry and the kind of like nutrition fitness side of things and it's an interesting perspective on also adhd so today's guest is rebecca king so rebecca is the at adhd.nutritionist on instagram so rebecca helps adults with adhd struggling with a disordered eating chronic dieting and body image issues making peace with food and improve their self-esteem until becca discovered intuitive eating she too struggled with a disordered eating because of her adhd and using an evidence-based background, weight-inclusive approach to eating and movement, Rebecca teaches how to make peace with food and feel empowered to trust your body again. And it's an incredible episode. It's incredibly open and honest. So some of the things we talk about are what is ADHD, four reasons why ADHD uh, or those with ADHD struggle with eating, uh, why um, they may struggle with kind of the binge eating side of things, four ways to eat more mindfully, why ADHD brains crave stimulation, why they also look for dopamine, making peace with sugar, moving away from perfect eating. This could also be with those without ADHD as well. We also talk talk about books to look at with kind of in relation to healing relationship with food and the body. And it's really open and honest. I I, I really did love this episode, and um, it's the books are, are the books I would I would encourage to for some people to to go and get. Um, and to listen and to even on audiobook. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode of Rebecca King. Rebecca, how are we? Good. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much. Uh, I know we were having technical issues before we came on. So yeah. the, the podcast life isn't sexy. Um, no. So Rebecca, <laughs> I'm going to get you to give us a brief background into yourself and how you kind of got into this realm and you're, you're kind of your... Yeah, everything with ADHD, really. Yeah. <laughs> so my name is Becca King. I am a registered dietitian, and I also have ADHD. So I, and personally, have run the gambit. I would say of eating disorders in my early life, um, or early adult life, and a lot of it was probably in part, obviously, the typical trying to control my weight stuff, but also um, ADHD definitely played a part in that. Um, and I actually started off working in weight loss when I started, um, my first job as a dietitian and I really didn't enjoy it. Um, and then I kind of got the opportunity because of the pandemic to get laid off, um, and then use that as a chance to kind of start my practice. And I was actually working with a really good friend who also has ADHD and kind of struggled with the same thing I did in grad school of like not eating enough during the day. And then when our meds would wear off, just binging at night. And so I did a couple of polls and like Facebook support group to do some market research. And that's kind of when I realized that all these women struggle with binge eating that have ADHD and there's really no resources specific to ADHD. Um, so that's when I kind of just got started on Instagram and it's grown over the past two years, which has been amazing. <laughs> it really has. He mentioned there about kind of the, the female side of things with ADHD yeah. is it more common in females than males or what's is there a breakdown or do you know the breakdown um that's a good question I think women are more likely to be diagnosed with an eating disorder than men are um I think just because there is a lot more of a focus societally on weight in women or controlling their weight um, but I think I definitely see, I just still have a lot of men that I work with that also kind of struggle with binge eating as well. So I'd yeah, say I think probably more women, but I think also that it's not eating a large volume of food for men doesn't always get interpreted as binge eating as much as it might be for a woman. So they might still be doing those behaviors, but it's a little bit more normalized in society for guys to like eat the big manly meal and all that kind of stuff, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> yep. I've, uh, yeah, I understand what you're, and also I think there's, I think during whatever I've realized during kind of the, the pandemic years, as we call it, I think women are better at talking and opening up about certain things. And as a man, uh, we're not amazing at talking about <laughs> our feelings or emotions. 
so that can play also a role and play a factor and it's kind of like there is a there unfortunately there is a taboo i think it's it is kind of going the right direction but i still think there's too much of a focus on what the scale says and how we yeah. feel about the scales yeah so we're going to bring it back down right back to basics and talk about adhd yeah. so i'm going to get you to say to explain what is adhd yeah so most people think of adhd as like you know the little hyperactive boy who like can't sit still in his chair or pay attention yeah or like you know, interrupts in the middle of sentences, you know, all of that's usually like the classic presentation of ADHD. Um, But there's really three types. So there's the hyperactive subtype, which would be kind of the classic version. And then there's inattentive and then combined. So people who are more on the inattentive side tend to be more forgetful, kind of like that squirrel, like, ooh, looked kind of distracted all the time kind of thing. Um, and then a combined type is someone who kind of has several symptoms from each of those categories. So they might struggle with being somewhat hyperactive and somewhat inattentive. Um, but really ADHD in a broader way to think about it is more of struggling with <clears throat> executive function. So being able to plan, organize, execute tasks, kind of all of that um, are things that people can struggle with and prioritizing can be an issue. Everything feels equally important, even though there are things that might actually be way more important than others, but in your, but it, as someone with ADHD, it can feel like everything is just equally important. It can be hard to figure out, you know, where to get started or what to do. And a lot of times it's hard to figure out like the little pieces from the beginning to the end to get to whatever goal you're trying to, to achieve. And it can be kind of like, I know from experience, from kind of working with some clients who have kind of like some form of it, um, routine and kind of scheduling and knowing what's the most priority should be the priority and what that's a big struggle yeah and it's kind of it's ironic with adhd is like all the things that help with managing adhd tend to be the things that we struggle with um because people with adhd basically we have lower levels of dopamine in our brain so we're constantly seeking stimulation and things we enjoy so we're very reward driven and very like i want to do the things i enjoy doing so you know, routines aren't always fun or doing the same things aren't fun every day. You know, self-care is not exactly, you know, the most fun thing, cleaning your house, all those things people tend to struggle with because they require a lot of executive functioning. And if you don't enjoy them, it's really hard to motivate yourself to want to do those things. And how do you get a diagnosis for ADHD? So you typically, it depends what country you're in. Um, I know like if you have more of a government, um, like in the U.S., since we don't have um, like nationalized healthcare, um, you still have to go see a specialist, which is pretty typical in a lot of places. Um, I know for me, I got diagnosed through a therapist. Like I just did some like paper tests, and then my therapist wrote a letter to my doctor that I had ADHD, which isn't like the typical route. Yeah. Like normally, there's like you have to go sit in front of the computer and do a bunch of different tests. I did those tests when I was like 13, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have ADHD. I just didn't want to apply myself. (laughs) Very big difference. Yeah. I, I didn't get tested like, or I didn't even think about it. Looking back, I see little inkling, like little moments where like that should have been like a, Oh, I might, might actually have ADHD. I remember in high school kind of thinking I might have. And then by, by middle of my freshman year of college, I was like, um, cause I didn't have those routines and structures that my mom had kind of put in place for me and always kept me really busy. And then once I got to college and I was kind of in control of my schedule and routine, I was like, I can't do this. Like, I don't know how to function. And luckily I like my roommate at the time had ADHD. And so I was like, and we were like, we're very, very, very similar. She's my best friend now. So I was like, I need to talk to somebody about this. And sure enough, they're like, yeah, you definitely have ADHD. <laughs> It's amazing though you have that support though because I think sometimes it can feel a little bit lonely from talking to some individuals that do have it. Yeah. Because it's kind of because it's such a misunderstood. Yeah. Like if you look at movies and you see someone hear of someone that has ADHD, it's kind of like they're they're, they're treated and they act a little bit different, but yeah. generally it's just certain little quirks that can yeah. that are slightly not what 
normal is, whatever normal is, if you know, no one's normal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I find it's kind of funny for me. I guess I just flock to people who are kind of neurodivergent because most, the majority of my friends have ADHD, but I know that that's definitely not the case for a lot of people. So it can be hard. And I think for women, because it often doesn't present the same as it does in men, because, you know, being a girl and you can't be it's not as socially acceptable to be bouncing around in your chair and interrupting people and all of that. So you start to learn from a young age, how to mask. Like I remember in middle school, I started chewing gum so that I would sit still. And I remember being like, this means I can move in my chair and I, but I can still like look like I'm sitting still. Um, so really learning how to like mask those behaviors. Um, and it's a lot of work to do that all the time to kind of like put on a, a front almost so that you feel quote unquote, normal in society. Quite tiring, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> it's been nice yeah. for me now that I work with, with all, everyone I work with either has ADHD or thinks they might have it or is in the process of getting diagnosed. And so it's nice for me. I feel like I don't have to do as much of that work anymore. <laughs> you, can, you, you can be Rebecca. Yes. Yes. Like I used to feel like there was a work version of me and then the version of me, like when I clocked on came home and now I'm like, Oh, this is nice. Like I don't have to put on a front for people. So I really enjoy that. It's amazing. That's that, that must be freeing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> amazing. Um, you, in one of your posts, you kind of talk about kind of the four main reasons why someone with ADHD can struggle with eating. Can you kind of go into those in a little bit more detail, please? I know I've definitely made several of these posts at this point. Yeah. So you might have to remind me what four I touched on in that post, if you possibly have it. Uh, <laughs> or I can look it up. I might, I have several of them. So I think it's one of the most recent ones. Cause when I was, okay. when I was sending over the questions, I was going to say, I haven't done one of those in a little bit. Let's see. Yeah. And ah, yeah, hyper focus would be one. So, like, when you get in a hyper focused state, you know, it's like you're working on that thing and nothing else exists pretty much. Like, you, I for me, like, if I'm working on a project or something, like, I can be in my chair, like, I need to go to the bathroom, but I like will not stop working. Or, like, oh, there's a like a glass of water literally on my desk right next to me, and you're like, I need to drink water, let me just keep but let me just keep finishing this one, <laughs> you know, let me finish this one sentence. And then you just, you just get really stuck into, into your zone essentially. Um, and a lot of times that can make it hard to people when they're really focused, don't want to stop to eat because they're afraid they can't reinitiate that task and get back into that state again. So they'll just kind of plow through that work. Um, and when you're hyper-focused, you kind of lose sense of your like sense of time. So like, it might feel like you worked on something for an hour, but you were really working on it for like four hours. <laughs> and then by the time you finish like getting out of that state, it's like, oh my gosh, I need to go to the bathroom. I need to eat. Like I need to like, I've not taken care of myself basically. So it makes it really challenging to, yeah, really just to take care of yourself. But with eating, it usually means you're not eating for a long period of time. And then when you do recognize that you're hungry, you're usually really, really hungry or it's hard to even decide what to eat at that point. And you're like, I'm ravenous and I haven't eaten anything. So being too busy, a lot of my clients will kind of think people with ADHD have these like endless to-do lists. So they're constantly thinking of things they need to be doing. Um, and so they're always busy. A lot of my clients are like, I just don't have time to eat. So, and I think working from home has made that even worse for people because I have clients, I have friends who are like, I'm literally on Zoom all day long. And my, my best friend just finished her training. And she was saying like, she had 10 minute breaks in between sessions. And she was like, I can't take my dog out. I can't do anything. Like there's only a couple things I can do in 10 minutes. And it's really frustrating to have to be like, I, she was like, I couldn't even make lunch for myself that day. And I was on zoom for like 12 hours. So it's just insane. I think to me, for me, first working with home is like, people don't get like, because you're not in a workspace, they don't acknowledge there's that. There's no like, boundaries. Yeah, there's no boundaries anymore. So it's like, you can eat and work and do everything all at the same time. And it's like, no, actually, like, people need a break from their work to, like, stop and eat lunch. Like, it is really good for us. And, like, I think society doesn't acknowledge that very much, that, like, we should stop and slow down and actually, like, eat a meal in the middle of the day versus, like, 
usually eating it at our desk and, <laughs> you know, like eating, shoveling food in our face because we're like, I just need to eat and get back to work. My clients will tell me because it's they're so busy, it feels unproductive to literally stop and eat a meal, even though it's really not unproductive. Um, but it's just kind of those messages we get a lot of times. And um, is there any way to kind of do you have any mechanisms for yourself to help that kind of breaking up the day or making yeah. sure you kind of I yeah, I have my clients. There's a couple of strategies I use with them. I kind of help with reframing that mindset a little bit of like, it is productive to stop and take care of yourself. Like you can't, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup and nourishing your body is really important. Um, some of my clients, I'll make, have them set like a meeting with themselves in the middle of the day so that there's time actually blocked off on their calendar. Like this is my time for me to stop and actually take care of myself and, you know, feed my body, you know, drink some water, go to the bathroom, even if that means like just getting out of your house and walking around the block, <laughs> like actually settings, you know, blocking off time on your calendar for that. And if you have people that like, if your boss or someone can't understand that, like you need 30 minutes of your day to eat lunch, <laughs> then you should probably either need to reevaluate that job or either, you know, or have a serious talk with them that like, you know, I need to eat during the day. And like that's not that's not a ridiculous request by, by any means um i have some clients too who i'll have them set like a reminder whether it's like on their watch or you know phone or something like that of just to check in with themselves um and so not necessarily meaning like to check in to see if just if they're hungry but just asking themselves like what do i need and to be able to do kind of a quick body scan with that um because i find a lot of times just pausing and asking ourselves that you might find, Oh, I'm actually hungry or, Oh, I need to go drink some water. Or maybe it's, I need some social connection. I just need to call like a friend for a few minutes or something. Um, but just, I think giving ourselves a chance to pause and ask ourselves that. And what about the other two kind of reasons why people with ADHD may struggle? Because I know there's two, there's definitely yeah. two big ones. Um, stimulant medication obviously is going to, for a lot of people is going to mess or alter with their appetite. So um, a side effect of a lot of stimulant medication is decreased appetite. Um, not, and some of them will even be like Vyvanse, which I think it might be Elvance, um, where you are potentially. I think that's what it's called. Um, but they're the same medication. A lot of times they can be actually be used as a binge eating treatment. Um, but I find a lot of times for my clients, it's given to them without actual like therapy or real treatment. So that way that just means that they're not actually getting skills to work through the binge eating. It's just suppressing their appetite during the day. And then those behaviors still show up in the evening time because they're not eating enough during the day and they're not learning strategies to actually cope yeah. with what's triggering them to binge eat. Cause it's usually not just like, Oh, I just don't have any self-control and I can't stop eating. There's usually some deeper things going on there that need to be addressed. And I get frustrated sometimes when providers just give people meds and then don't actually, you know, give them like, you know, help them find therapy or, you know, tools and resources to help them actually learn how to cope with it. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think the meds thing is, I have an experience of that, of yeah. that whole meds being pushed on meds before yeah. and just dealing with the actual thing that was going on. It's yeah not conducive um yeah. <laughs> and is there, a, is, is there a fourth reason or is that is that all yeah. the reasons um the other reason i have on that post is fear of weight gain i think just um in general in society that is usually a fear yeah. and that can make eating um challenging people with adhd are more likely to struggle with kind of that all or none mindset so it's very easy to get drawn into like restrictive behaviors and things like that as a fear of gaining weight. And what, a, like in relation to kind of getting away from the scales, and yeah. I think it's, I think it's a driver for an awful lot of people. Like I know I work with people who are emotional leaders and yeah. kind of, then there's the other people who want to do photo shoots. I've got the other people who are doing weight loss. So it, it varies. Yeah. But in relation to kind of getting away from someone from the actual metric that is a piece of plastic on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> How do you try to reframe that to someone yeah. who may be struggling with it? 
I like to ask people like, how does that, how does the scale make them feel? You know, like if something on the scale every morning or whenever you do it shapes the rest of your day, the way you feel about yourself, um, you know, all of that, then I think I, you know, I try to encourage my clients to like, see what would happen if you didn't weigh yourself, you know, like you're probably going to feel better about yourself and then focusing on like, how do I feel, you know, like do, you know, cause that's, those are metrics we can actually focus on changing long-term, like wanting to have more energy or feeling stronger or, you know, whatever we're looking for. I try to emphasize those things versus like an arbitrary number on the scale. Um, cause if you think about all the other, like measurements in our body like our shoe size or our height like we don't try and stretch ourselves out to be taller or we don't try and like shrink our feet to wear a certain size shoe um but weight is this one number we feel we have this ability to control and for the majority of people the research really shows that that's you know that it's usually means the more you try to control your weight the more your weight is going to increase over time yeah, it's kind of outsourcing the control to yeah. <laughs> an external factor, and people yes. don't. I when when people realize that it, it's it's amazing to watch, but yeah. it takes a lot of un- discomfort and dealing with those emotions. But I also don't think people have been taught from a young age of how to deal with those emotions. Yeah, yeah, I think we don't learn how to. Yeah, I think emotions are like, especially like, even for people with ADHD, like we don't. A lot of people don't like emotions or like they can be very, very intense. So you just rather would not experience them or people even have a hard time, like identifying the emotions that they're yeah. feeling. Like for me, I sometimes have to have like the wheel of emotions. If uh, ever yeah. The those. colorful one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I yeah. usually, it's like if I'm struggling with figuring out what I'm feeling, like I will go look at that because I like almost need a like list of adjectives that describe my feelings. And it's, there's days where I'm like, I'm not happy, sad, or mad, but I don't have the right word for this. And so <laughs> you can go look at that and be like, oh, wait, that's what I'm feeling. But it just, I think society doesn't emphasize that like feelings are normal and that we should have them. <laughs> feelings, emotions are where the truth are, what the truth is, but most people yeah. won't, don't want to deal with the truth. That's yeah. an unfortunate <laughs> reality. I think people are realizing that during COVID. I think that's oh, one yeah. of the biggest things that's kind of come through. Um, you mentioned there about hunger and those with ADHD. Do you have any cues to kind of help someone to notice that they're actually hungry because and examples of actual practical hunger? Because I know you put up a post on this as well. Yeah. So some hunger can be obviously like our growling, a growling stomach is a big one or is like one that most people think is what hunger is. It's like yeah. I should have a sensation in my stomach that's telling me that I'm hungry but it can be, you know, getting a headache, feeling, you know, lightheaded or dizzy. Um, some people have like an aching or a gnawing sensation in their like throat or esophagus. Um, some people will have like very food related thoughts. If you're like constantly thinking about food <laughs> while you're trying to do something else, like that might be a sign that you're hungry. Um, even changes in mood, like getting hangry. For me, I get it's kind of along that lines of like, I get really angry at the speed of my computer. And that's usually how I know to pause and ask myself if I've eaten. Um, I'm trying to think what else feeling anxious or really overwhelmed out of nowhere um, can be one um, feeling lethargic, tired. Some people even experience like nausea since um, if they're like extremely hungry. Um, but I think figuring to trying to figure out like what a hunger cue is, 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 just seeing if you eat and if eating food causes that sensation to change or go away, then it was probably a hunger cue. Um, if it doesn't, then it's probably something else, but it's just kind of having to spend time being open and curious and trying things out and noticing them and making note of that so that your body can learn like, Oh, that's how I know that it's time for me to stop and eat. So and how important is the regular meals thing to people? I think it's like you're told it as a kid. Yeah. But we forget it as adults. Yeah. A lot of times, like if you're dieting or, you know, even if you're not intentionally dieting, but if you have for like people with ADHD who are more prone to skipping meals, going really long yeah. periods without eating, that can mess with your hunger cues. Because basically, if your body is getting sending out this message to you, like, "Hey, I'm hungry," and you're not eat, you're not acting on it, eventually those 
cues go dormant. So intermittent fasting would be like a good example of like for probably for the first initial period, there are times when you're literally ignoring your hunger until you get to the window of time that you're allowed to eat. And then over time, it gets easier to not eat during the window you're not supposed to eat because your body is no longer sending those messages. Um, But that can, so there can be a time, a period of time, especially if you don't recognize hunger cues or kind of being very intentional with eating every three to four hours um, can kind of bring those hunger cues back. And so like a lot of people who are in eating disorder treatment will be on meal plans to eat very consistently throughout the day for that purpose of, of bringing back those cues and really knowing that, Hey, I am hungry. And for a lot of my clients too, that's kind of where practical hunger comes in is like eating when you might not be hungry, but logically, you know, you need to eat because you're going to be a ravenous leader. So maybe it's like eating before a meeting because you know, you're going to be in there for like a couple hours and you won't have access to food. That would be an example for my clients. I'll usually be like, you know, if you know, you're about to get hyper-focused on something, eat something before you, you know, like if you're about to go sit down and work on an assignment or a project or something, and you know, there's a good chance that you're going to like lose track of time and get hyper-focused, eat something beforehand. So that way, when you get out of that state, you're not ravenous and want all of the food. I love that idea of kind of, if you know, you're about to do some deep work or whatever it may be yeah. eat beforehand before eat before yeah. that whole thing. And I think that's where like in intuitive eating, most people think it's like, oh, you only eat when you're hungry. And no, there's a million other reasons you might eat food. And I think being logical with like knowing certain things like, hey, I'm about to go out and do do errands for a really long time. Or like, I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm kind of hungry right now. Like I should probably eat something before I go, because if I go to the grocery store hungry, everything looks good. And then I'm more likely to buy way more than I probably need or buy things that I don't actually really want just because I'm, I'm hungry. Um, so intuitive, like, I think it's important to note that like intuitive eating is intuitive to individual. Yeah. Because if I talk to say my brother, who's always hungry um <laughs> he's he, he needs it at different stages while i tend to like not want food for probably about 10 a.m in the morning it's just the way yeah. my body works so it is important to note that it is intuitive you're you shouldn't be mimicking yeah what someone on instagram or what yeah. eating a day or whatever that yeah. No, rubbish I hate is. <laughs> yeah so i'm glad we're on the same page on that one um <laughs> You, like one of the foods that gets an awful lot of kind of um kind of an unfair rep is sugar yes. and one of the posts that you put up i think back in august was making peace with sugar could actually yes. help someone with ad with adhd can you talk about that a little bit more yeah yeah so making peace with food is all about giving yourself the unconditional permission to eat with attunement most people forget that piece of of because most people will say, well, if I just give myself unconditional permission to eat. Like I'm going to eat cake and cookies and, and, you know, and ice cream and all day long, that's all I'm going to eat. Then if I'm listening to quote unquote, listening to my body, that's all I'm going to want. But if you ask yourself, how would I feel eating those foods 24 seven, usually you'd be like, oh, I definitely wouldn't feel good. I'd want, you know, I probably want something else at some point. So there is that piece of really connecting with our bodies. So like trying to be really present and normalize a lot of foods. So just kind of removing that good versus bad, you know, mentality, because if um, I was actually listening to a book the other day and they were talking about like, which one's better, an apple or or a hamburger. And, you know, and they're like, most people are probably going to say the apple is better, but like really they're neither one is better than the other because there's completely different reasons you would make. Yeah you would choose one or the other and they both have completely different nutrition prof- like nutrient profiles that you would need for different reasons and so it's like one's not better intrinsically than the other or you're not better because you chose the apple over the cheeseburger you know and kind of removing that morality around food because it gets really internalized when we feel we're making a quote unquote bad food choice it makes us feel bad and more likely to overeat or binge on that food because of that those feelings of like, oh, I'm eating a food that's bad, or I shouldn't, shouldn't be eating this food. So making peace with food is kind of normalizing it. So there's this, um, the idea of habituation. So having repeated exposures to a food is kind of how you make peace with food. Um, so that way it, it removes that novelty aspect of it that keeps it new and exciting. And if you think about it, 
when a food is restricted or we don't allow ourselves to have it, um, the reward value is extremely high for that food. So when you habituate or to me normalize that food, it removes some of that reward value to it. So you don't get for people with ADHD, that reward is dopamine. So you're not going to get as much dopamine from doing something that is restricted or off limits by normalizing it. And like, for me, ice cream was one of those foods that like, if it was in my house, I was eating it. I would steal my roommate's ice cream (laughs) when I had a roommate. And then I would like go to the store the next morning and like scoop off like what I needed to. So she would think I would hadn't eaten all of her ice cream the night before. She totally knew though. Um, (laughs) But I think the, a lot of people are like, I could never do that. And like, when I first heard of intuitive eating, I was like, thought exactly the same thing. Um, But I think for people with ADHD, where sugar can be a really, um, can be a, a big source of dopamine for our brains. When we normalize, normalize it, there's and explore other tools to get that dopamine from. Um, you can make peace with food. It's a huge fear for people to like have certain foods in the house. So like, I'm glad we're on the same page with ice cream. Ice cream is life. So I'm glad we're on the same page. Um, (laughs) But for a lot of people, it's either chocolate or some sort of carbohydrate or fatty, sugary foods. It's generally the ones that they go for. But an awful lot of people will end up like no they can't be in the house because leave them all it's like no but if you give yourself that little bit more often you won't do that will you get it right every time absolutely not but you people forget the human side of eating and that's where the polarity like no one nails their nutrition every single day no yeah not even us who know what we're doing yeah and it's it's not perfect i think people think eating has to be perfect and like they're really isn't like perfect eating. And when you do allow foods in they're they're not all that you think about all the time. And people, I think if you've felt that way for years and years and years, it's really hard to not think that way um, about food or, you know, a lot of times we have experiences where we maybe give ourselves permission to allow those foods in. And then we overeat and binge on them. And we're like, see, this is why I can't do this. So I'm going to go back to to herself. Yeah. And so it, like, it, it is a, a process and there's usually an intuitive eating, they call it the honeymoon phase when you start kind of breaking some of your food rules and kind of allowing more foods back in that were previously off limits. It's normal to eat more of those foods because you're, you've conditioned your body essentially to want to restrict those foods again in the future. Um, because you kind of had that experience, right. Of like letting the food in, into your house, you binge on it, tell yourself, this is why you can't have it restricted again. And then over time, your body expects that restriction to come every time you eat that food. So it wants all of it before it's gone. So part of habituation is just like allowing your body to see that these foods are going to be here again in the future. And they're not going to be, you know, I'm not going to have, have an inability to get that access. You mentioned there about kind of moving away from perfect eating. (laughs) What kind of practical tips have you got? Because, we think as humans that we can be perfect, but yeah. the first word I said there is humans. We can't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's this thing that's created in like biblical times. It come, there's a mass, there's a massive trifecta where it kind of comes to perfection. It could be trauma, it could be taught to us, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. There's loads of different elements to it. But how do you kind of how would you kind of educate someone or work with someone to kind of move away from perfect eating? I think writing out one way is thinking about like what is perfect eating to you and actually putting words to that of like because that's going to look different for everybody right whether yeah. that's you know I don't eat any processed foods or I you know whatever they consider perfect eating and then it, you know having them compare that to what is reality because it might not be that half of those things are actually realistic or have you ever been able to eat like this for a long period of time and most of the time the answer is going to be like no or I've never been able to do that, or I just, I heard, or I saw that I should do this, um, or eat this certain way and kind of looking at it and evaluating what's right for you. Um, if there's things you feel like, like, oh, I always have to have, you know, perfect eating is always picking the most low calorie thing, or depending on a lot of times they end up just becoming food rules for us of like what perfect eating is. And so being able to challenge those, whether it's, if it's like that, that example of like, 
only picking the lowest calorie thing on the menu, then maybe it's picking something else on the menu that you actually want to eat for once versus that. Um, I know a big one for my clients is like, you can never drink anything that has calories in it. Like everything you drink should be calorie free. And, and so that one's always a fun one for them to challenge and be like, Oh wait, this, like I have one client, she did this the other day with Coca-Cola and she was like midway through, she's like, actually I just forgot it even exists. Like while we were on a call, like I was having them all eat a food on a call and like midway through, she's like, I even forgot I was even drinking this because just like, I just got enough to actually satisfy me versus drinking a diet Coke. And it doesn't, she was like, and that just didn't taste as good. So. Yeah. And I do think that it's like, it's important to note, like if you reintroduce it back in, you're going to be a stronger position down the line. It will be difficult. It can be difficult on that yeah. trust factor because you've taught yourself one way and now it's kind of almost relearning. And if you're an adult or if you're kind of like thirties, forties, fifties, whatever yeah. age you may be, it's it can be different difficult to kind of rewire your attitude and trust yourself around things again so it's it's not easy and we're yeah. not sitting here on our own yeah, it's not like, yeah i get that a lot like i made a post actually about making pieces of food everyone's like oh cool but kind of the same concept with not allowing things in your house this week and cool everyone was like cool i got it everything's fixed now and i was like nowhere in this post did I say just let the food back in your house and you've made peace with food? Life's great. Like it'll just I love happen. social media. Yeah. I, lo- I was like, nowhere in this post did I say that. But okay, guys, whether like you're missing the whole point. I'm like, I'm not missing the whole point. This is just like clearly this got underneath your skin and that's saying something. But I was like, I know that intuitive eating and I know that allowing these foods back into your life and normalizing it's a lot of work and it does, it's not an easy easy process because there's a lot of things tied into that and breaking it all down can can take time and a lot of patience and, and yeah, <laughs> patience is the big word the big <laughs> word which people don't like yeah um <laughs> you mentioned uh, kind of you mentioned like uh, you were reading a book recently you kind of um, and have you got any books that will kind of help people work with their relationship with their body and food that you kind yeah. of refer out to clients or have read yourself that have kind of hit you in the face i love um the book intuitive eating obviously is is a good one if you don't want to read through it or you find it's hard to read through because a lot of my clients have shared that with me the back summarizes all the principles of intuitive eating there's kind of like an index and like a frequently asked questions in, in the back of the book so like if you're struggling with reading the book, I highly recommend at least doing the back part of the book because <laughs> um, it does kind of summarize things nicely. Um, and then you can dig in if you're still curious. Anti-diet is another one by, I believe it's Christy Harrison. Um, that is amazing. Um, it really does a good job with like breaking down kind of the well. I, she focuses a lot on like the wellness diet or just like the wellness world. And so I think um, it's nice to kind of see that because that's more of like a newer area in the diet and diet culture of, you know, the wellness side of things, not necessarily always focusing on weight or how it's marketed that way, but more of like wellness stuff. Um, Health at Every Size is also a really great book. Um, it's Lindo Bacon. Um, um, they are, um, do a really good job of like, breaking down the science of why dieting doesn't work. Um, and I found that really helpful, especially if you're someone who's like, I, you know, I want to eat intuitively, but I need to lose weight first. If I find that book's really good for breaking or challenging that mindset of like, but I need to lose weight and kind of really looking at the science of that. Um, it's based on like, a, it was based on a study that kind of the, the health at every size model of care and found that people were actually got had better health outcomes when they actually weren't doing classical dieting that were in larger bodies. And it was kind of amazing. So um, those would be a couple of my favorites. And the, um, and my body's not an apology is another really good book. Amazing. I think hopefully like if, if someone's listening, I know people are always asking for book recommendations, but it's also yeah. like, you have to be in the right headspace to get to the message. I think that's the hardest yeah. part for when you recommend <laughs> books. Um, I know for me, part. when I first heard of intuitive eating, like, and even just health at every size and that approach in grad school, I was very, very skeptical of it. And 
being open to, I mean, for me, I'm a lot of my perspectives over life have changed. Um, so just being open to like, there might be a different way of thinking about things and that's, and that's okay. But yeah, if you Google intuitive eating books or health at every size books, there is an, ab- an abundance of resources. What's the biggest change you've seen in your headspace or mindset or in shift in relation to health at every size? Ooh, honestly, I truly that you can, that there is health at every size. Not that, not to say like everybody is healthy at every size, but that there is true health at every size. I've had clients in much larger bodies who are perfectly healthy that, um, you know, have no chronic diseases are perfectly fine. They do physical activity. They eat nutritious foods. And for me, it was a really big eye opener when I was in my internship to see that because you just get told that everyone who's in a larger body is unhealthy. (laughs) Like they're going to get, they're going to, because they're in a bigger body, like they're going to get diabetes. They're going to get this, they're going to get that. And it's like, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that. And I have a lot of clients who unfortunately um, have had really terrible experiences with healthcare and just really get treated like this is all their fault when it's really, or like some of them have been in larger bodies their whole lives and they're perfectly healthy. So I think that's probably the biggest um, mind shift for me or mindset shift is that people can be in for me, it's just to support them where they're at and not necessarily for me, I don't focus on weight loss at all because it's just, for me, it's having a good relationship with food and your body and how to eat in a way that makes you feel your best and in a way that you can actually do it long-term so that you don't have to constantly be swinging back and forth and on and off diets. Does that kind of start with body uh, body acceptance rather than kind of the body positivity side of things? Because I think people get the two very confused. Yes. Yeah. I think one of the reasons I really appreciate the book Intuitive Eating is like they focus on body respect, which I think falls more in line with body um, body acceptance. Because I think yeah. most people think that you know, it's just this, that, yeah, the, I enjoy body positivity, but I think like body acceptance and body respect, I think that area is much more realistic for how it really is in day-to-day life. But I think it really does come with an acceptance piece first of like accepting that your body might never change. And there's a grieving period that goes on with that. And, um, and it can be a frustrating and challenging time, but I definitely think that that's kind of where it starts. Yeah, and I think, and I'm not trying to be gender specific, I do feel that kind of women have an awful lot more to deal with from puberty to having babies, then into perimenopause, then to menopause. And I do think there's not enough education out there or not enough focus in schools. Yeah. I'm only talking about I haven't I, I I wasn't taught anything I know I'm a male but I was never taught anything about nutrition or anything at school and yeah. I know I'm at school a good while but it's it's um or that our bodies even change like from puberty until menopause as a woman like your body is and your body shape is going to change and that's normal and I wish that that was like you know, part of health class and learning those things like that should be included in that process because you grow up thinking like I should be the same size as I was in high school. And if you're, you know, if you're 40 years old, you don't need to be the same size you were when you were, you know, 16 years old. That's probably pretty unrealistic for the majority of the population. And that just usually breeds a lot of feelings of guilt and shame because you feel like you've somehow failed the what society expects of you i think one of the books i always push on clients around kind of like the acceptance thing is self-compassion by Kristen neff it's literally yeah. the bible for yeah. for uh self but like it literally hits everyone in the face like it's especially the homeworks you're like these are too hard these are too yeah. hard. like <laughs> please run away yeah um the last question i'm gonna ask rebecca before you head off is in relation yeah. to dopamine you mentioned it earlier on in the episode about are you actually hungry or is it you need dopamine? And yeah. can you talk about that a little bit more? Because I think it's hugely important. Yeah. So a lot of my clients will express uh, describe needing dopamine or when they're needing stimulation as like something to do. They're like are bored. A lot of times like boredom eating for my clients is usually needing stimulation. So they're like, I need something to do with my hands or my mouth. And I think especially over the past couple of years being 
people who are have spent a lot more time at home and don't have access to thing, you know, as much things that are stimulating or bring them joy, that food has really been brought to the forefront as a tool for stimulation. Or like I have a lot of my clients are diagnosed later in life that are women. And so there'll be people who are like, I have always been a snacker all day long, or like anytime I had to do work or study, I had to be, you know, eating, you know, chocolate or having, you know, a bag of potato chips with me while I did it. Um, Cause crunchy food, just that, that sensory experience of food is what gives our brains dopamine um, as well as carbohydrates, but just like the whole sensory experience. That's why people like when they fidget or have things like that, that they play with um, it's that sensory experience that gives them dopamine. So. I think, I think when, when people like talk about the likes of I'm craving a certain food, uh, particularly around a certain time of the month that can happen. It's normally what the receptors in the brain are yeah. looking for rather than the actual food. Because I've never said to myself, I crave a pavlova. It's normally that you've associated <laughs> a chocolate or a carbohydrate or some fatty food that would, has come from your past or a happy time. And that's why you're looking yeah. for that food linked with you're restricting it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Like a lot of people, you know, I don't eat chocolate for women like the week before their, before their menstrual no, cycle. Don't do like, it. I never eat chocolate, but then the week before I'll, I just have these super strong cravings and I'm like, yeah, because we're restricting it. And then that week beforehand for people like for women are, um, dopamine and serotonin levels drop during that time. Um, and for people with women with ADHD your dopamine levels are already low. And so they're dropping even lower. And so serotonin, so like chocolate is something, a food source that gives us dopamine and serotonin. So it probably makes your brain really happy during that time. So for my, me, I'm like, it's not about restricting it during those times, but how can I help you enjoy it and be as mindful as possible so that you can like maximize the reward of that food versus like eating it in front of the TV, being super disengaged from the food, completely distracted. And you're like, well, I eat the whole candy bar. And usually when I find I get my clients to eat, limit the distractions as much as possible and have them eat it more mindfully. They're like, oh, I actually don't need all of, all of this. Like I normally wouldn't. I'm like, it, isn't that kind of crazy? Like you can still get to enjoy it as much as you need to. But I think when you, especially with foods that feel off limits or bad or restricted, when you're really mindful and slow down and savor them and enjoy them, you end up not needing as much to get to that, that point of satisfaction. There's, I think there's one of the books that I have here. I think it's called like Break Binge Eating. And one of the things they talk about with chocolate in particular is if you, I don't think people realize how chocolate actually tastes. If you put chocolate onto your tongue and let it melt, you will taste the chocolate and you will taste how different and how much nicer it mm -hmm. is if you just place it on your tongue and let it go. But so we're too, as you said, we're distracted. We're watching Netflix, we're watching Amazon Prime, whatever it is. If you actually place the chocolate onto your tongue and let it sit, you'll enjoy the hell of a lot more. It's actually, it's, it's quite, yeah. it's quite a lot more enjoyable when you just let it melt on your tongue. Oh yeah. I did it. My internship, we had, um, one of the programs we did was like a mindful eating program with some veterans. And it was really funny because we thought they'd all enjoy this, right? We like, I'll have them like put it, like close their eyes and like basically taste a piece of chocolate blindly. And of course, for whatever reason, everyone in the group, except for like one person, <laughs> happened to like actually not enjoy chocolate. So it was really funny to us because you would think like most people do and then they started tasting like, I don't like chocolate. Nope. It was so funny because like they genuinely, even prior to that, didn't like it. And we're like, how do you guys not like chocolate? Like, because they just assume like majority of people enjoy chocolate. <laughs> and that was the candy we happened to have in, in our office. <laughs> I always, I always say to my clients, like you're a much nicer person with carbs and chocolate in your life. So stop yeah. making yeah. yourself horrible. Yeah. Uh, like I, my first job was a, the weight loss clinic I worked at was a low carb plan. And like, it made me genuinely sad for people because they were not uh, like happier people. Um, or they'd be like, I'm craving something. I was definitely a little bit rogue of a dietitian there. Cause yeah. they'd be like, I just really want a cookie. I'm like, then eat the cookie. And they're like, but it's not on plan. Or I would like, they'd ask, I'd have to, I'd, for notes purposes, I'd have to ask what they would eat off plan. And they would think I would get mad at them for something. I'd be like, okay. And then they'd be like, what? And I'd be like, yeah, you ate it. Okay. Let's see. Not the end of the world. <laughs> you find people are, are like almost afraid of kind of like 
being honest, what they've had? I don't find it as much anymore. And even I think with my clients at my old job, because I'm the dialogue I ever never always had with people did not involve telling them they shouldn't eat anything. Um, I, you know, if, if you ate something off plan, I'm not going to judge you for it. I'd rather you tell me. And then if you're frustrated, you're not losing weight. Like we could talk about things, but for me, I usually would have, I was just like, you can eat what you want. Like it's really okay. And especially because I would find the clients who are super restrictive and follow the plan to a T at some point, they would fall off plan really, really hard because it's still that pendulum of restriction for them. And then I had clients who were really just on a more middle of the road plan and they would tend to not have as much of those big binges or going quote unquote off plan because they were still allowing those foods in. So. Yeah. I think people just need to listen to this and get yeah, the food like, yeah, like in there. Yeah. Like listen to, and I think people think listening to your body initially is like one of those things where like, if I just listen to my body, I'm never going to eat anything. I'm never going to eat a vegetable ever. And I'm like, yeah, it is really fun when I have clients who are like, I craved vegetables for the first, first time in my life. And like, I never thought I would ever crave a vegetable. And I'm like, it's pretty cool when you like allow yourself to eat what you want and listen to your body. Your body actually does want nutritious food because it tastes, it does taste good, but it also makes us feel good when we eat it. Like you do feel good when you eat nutritious food. So, yeah. Uh, and I think that's a, a great note to kind of finish yeah. up on. Like there's so much in that. And I think there's, there, I think people are going to be listening back, particularly around the perfection thing and actually trusting themselves around the food thing is a huge part. Yeah. I think everyone, whether you have ADHD or not, is something that can relate to this episode. So Rebecca, where can people find out about you? Where can people work with you? Where can f- people find out about you on social media? Yeah, I am mostly on Instagram at ADHD.nutritionist. Um, I do a 10-week small group coaching program right now. Um, and it's basically for um, adults with ADHD who struggle mostly with the binge eating side of things and want to work on having a better relationship with food. Um, so I kind of teach intuitive eating, but through the lens of ADHD. So kind of adjusting for, if you know, eating on medication, struggles with executive functioning around food and cooking and all of that. So just how to work. I really like to work with my clients, like working with their brain to make cooking and eating as easy as possible versus probably a lot of strategies they've maybe tried in the past that are more neurotypical that just don't work for for them and and not having to feel like it's their fault because they can't do X, Y, or Z. Um, And if you're interested in working with me, I do offer a free 30 minute call um, to learn about my coaching program, see if it's a good fit for you. And the link for, to set up that call will be in my Instagram bio. Amazing. And if guys, if you want to work with Rebecca, I'll put all the, the information into the, the write-up on the show notes and stuff like that. So if you just click on the links, you'll be brought right to where Rebecca is talking about. Rebecca, I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on all the way from the other side of the world. So thank yeah. you so much for coming on. Yes. Thank you for having me. And thank you for being a trainer that does not not praise restricting carbohydrates and sweets because that is that is not an easy easy thing to find (laughs) i've done it myself i did a fitness photo shoot and was on 100 grams of carbohydrates a day and i don't want to instruct don't want to enforce it onto anyone it was miserable yeah miserable yeah so so yeah i won't do it to anyone Uh, but thank you so much for coming on rebecca you're welcome thanks for having me